This morning we have the joy of enjoying part two of Revelation chapter five. If you're with us last Sunday, Easter Sunday, we celebrated the magnificent opening of this chapter, but it was, it was such a, a glorious chapter. I, I wanted to break it into two parts. This is part two, but for context, I'm going to read the entire chapter this morning uh, because I, I think that'll help us appreciate the second half of the chapter, which is a response to what happens in the first half of the chapter. So let's read, and as we do every week, let's remind ourselves, this is God's Word about God's Son. It comes to us with authority, and we come to it with eager and humble anticipation. Let's read it with that sense of joy. Revelation chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. In our passage this morning, verse 8, And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Lord, bless the preaching and the obeying of your word. The sound of victory is part of a headline of an article written a number of years ago for DailyMail.com by Callan Rosenblatt. And Callan wrote the following. 
It was music to Chicagoans' ears, 108 years in the making. On Thursday, the Chicago Cubs defeated the Cleveland Indians in the 10th inning of the final game of the World Series. Fans had waited over a century to fly the W, and as Wrigley Field proclaimed Cubs win, the city erupted with celebratory cries, cheers, and horn honking. A mile away from Wrigley, Patrick DeCorey recorded the sounds high above the city as the air filled with jubilance. Several fireworks burst in the air, punctuated the cheers near to the field. About two minutes into the video, singing can be heard. It's unclear what is being sung, but it's likely the Go Cubs Go rallying song. Fans who couldn't afford a ticket swarmed around Wrigley Field by the thousands in a crowd so thick it appeared as if fans had morphed into one giant amorphous being. The thousands of voices were carried through the air where DeCorey listened a mile away. The electricity of the city seemed palpable. The sound of victory. It's so instinctive that we observe it and, and actually we participate in it almost subconsciously. It would seem almost effortlessly in the right moment, given the right victory, waited for the right length of time, with the right amount of passion and investment, we assume that celebration should result in exaltation. We, we assume that. We assume victory should lead to a, a kind of resounding joy and jubilation. And we do that for something as superficial as men with a wooden stick hitting a ball of twine over a fence waiting a mere hundred years. But if you can imagine being from Chicago, and perhaps you've lived your whole life in Chicago, and maybe your grandfather lived in Chicago, maybe his father lived in Chicago, and for all of those generations, you were waiting and waiting and waiting, and this team had never won. And you'd gone and you'd gone and you'd gone and just become so used to waiting that it had seemed, it had seemed like an impossibility. And then the moment comes. And if you're that native-born son with your father and your grandfather and your great-grandfather even, there at the field, I have no doubt that it was instinctive for someone like that to raise their voice in a shout. Because that's a lot of years of waiting. It's not surprising that victory would have a sound at that point. I would be surprised if someone in that moment would say, good for us, and goes home. Win registered. Looking forward to next season. No, victory is meant to resound. And if that's true of a baseball game and any number of other human victories that you've observed in the same kind of reaction, then certainly that ought to be how much more true for the victory of the ages, for the champion of the ages. What seems right to us in such lesser ways in this world is seen here in its ultimate form. The resounding sound of the victory of Christ. The resounding sound of the worship of Christ. And this morning, we get to see heaven's perspective on the right response to the ultimate victory. The right response to a champion of unlimited worth. The point of this half of the chapter seems to be that his worth, which was described in the opening half, is not merely to be a fact we register with our minds, but something that should resound in a celebration of worship. You might ask this question, why is the second half of Revelation 5 in the Bible? 
Wasn't the first half sufficient to register the fact that he is the champion? Yes, it was. That he is worthy? Yes, it was. Why is the second half in the Bible? Except to indicate that that worth should resound in worship. That that worth should resound. It should sound forth in worship. The Bible is not merely a book of facts and truth to be affirmed but a person to be celebrated and worshipped. And that's what the second half of this chapter tells us, that the worth of Christ must resound in the worship of Christ. The worth of Christ, and that's actually what the word worship means. The worth of Christ should resound in the worship of Christ. That's what this chapter is going to get across to us, and I hope that's what it does to us as well. I hope it places us, spiritually speaking, in that crowd, and that it is just as instinctive for us to join the sound as we wait for that certain day, as it would be for any number of human celebrations that we would view as natural in this age. All right, three sections of this celebration that we'll walk through this morning. The first is the song of redemption. The song of redemption, the song of the angels, and the song of creation. That'll be the three points this morning. But first, the song of redemption. You can think of this as a a worship scene that has these these choruses that just build on top of each other. There's three of them, basically. And the first, I'm I'm capsizing the, the song of redemption. The emphasis of this first group, this first chorus, seems to be pointing out the worthiness of the Lamb as the Redeemer of His church. Those that are leading this chorus, you'll notice in verse 8, are those 24 elders that we referenced before and the four living creatures. Now, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago when we walked through chapter 4, but I, I think it's likely that those 24 elders are angelic beings whose number symbolically represents the people of God in the Old and New Testaments. That's because the number 12, which is not hard to see why, it often is referenced as representing God's people because there was 12 sons of Israel in the Old Testament. There were 12 apostles of the Lamb, and so 24 is not more complicated than two sets of 12 brought together. I don't think these are actually Christians or Christian elders in some sense because they distinguish themselves from the church in various points of the book. But I think they have this kind of dignitary, symbolic role of representing God's people. They're sort of symbolically representing God's people, and they're doing what God's people long to do and will do. And in this case, they join with these these four living creatures that we said in chapter 4 represent creation. That The highest form of all of the various types in creation are represented by these four living creatures. And so together... Representatively, God's people and creation lead in this chorus, and they, it says they, they fall down before the Lamb. They're holding some kind of musical instrument and golden bowls full of incense. This is another reason why I think these 24 are, are connected to the church, because they hold what, what represents the prayers of the saints, and so representatively, these, these guys are sort of leading in what the song of the church ought to be. And they, they fall down basically in, in, in as, as a gesture of submission and declaring his authority and his royalty and his rule. And then they begin singing this song. He is worthy, they sing. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. Remember, the scroll represents God's purpose for all of history, not just its revelation, but its accomplishment. That's what this scroll will represent as the book unfolds. 
It stands as the signatory agent of God's purpose in redemption and judgment for all of history. And the person who takes it takes that task on. So he is worthy to take that scroll. We want to notice why he is worthy. He is worthy to do that for you were slain, they say. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. So these angelic beings that see God's holiness perfectly, these living creatures that represent the highest form of creation in the throne room of heaven that are aware of the holiness of God, they lead the people of God and all of creation in in this reason for the worthiness of Christ. Of all the reasons that could be referenced, that will be referenced in this song, there is this one overarching reason why he should be worshipped, why he should be praised, why that crowd should resound in worship. Of the many reasons, this is the reason why they state right up front We can put it this way, the chorus of the song, the accent of the song is what? You were slain. You were slain. It it is a, a surprising accent in our world that wants to focus on physical might, on endurance, on power, on the evidence of strength. In heaven, The mystery is revealed that what qualifies the Son of God to take the scroll is his blood purchase of a people. Because from heaven's perspective, that was the only way that God's purpose in this earth could be fulfilled. That was the only way. Without that, there would only be judgment. There would only be endless darkness in this age, and there would be no redemption of humanity. From heaven's perspective, from the angelic perspective, there would have been no point for there to be any other humans past Adam and Eve. If there wasn't going to be redemption, if there wasn't going to be a a renewal, if there wasn't going to be a salvation and a remnant and a new heavens and a new earth that did display the glory of God, then why go through human history at all? So what makes the Lamb worthy is that he makes a new nation of people possible. A new nation of people comprised of sinners. Because that's the only people that there are, is sinners. The only people that exist are sinners. There's apathetic sinners. There's tyrannical sinners. There's lustful sinners. There's lazy sinners. There's selfish sinners. There's fearful sinners. But basically, everyone is a sinner. And so the only way the Lamb could take a scroll that included redemption is if he died in place of sinners, and instead of them facing only judgment, they can be a part of a new heavens and a new earth as part of God's new creation. Now, the people in heaven that are aware of God's holiness, this is the most magnificent qualification of all. They see that as shockingly qualifying as amazingly credentialed that the very Son of God, the Eternal One, would be willing to take on human flesh to die in the place of people, they consider the most magnificent reason why He is worthy. And that is instructive for the church. Because of these beings who needed no redemption are so enthralled with the Redeemer, how much more should the people who are redeemed 
How much more should the people whose sins were paid for by this blood, by this death, these people who were exiled out of this kingdom and now somehow miraculously have been brought back in. This passage contradicts human optimism and the confidence of human morality that pervades our culture and is present in our heart. It co- contradicts our self-righteousness and confidence that God needs us in some personal, emotional way. No, no, no. Here's the reason. By his own mercy and grace, he chose to take on our form and to die in our place. And his death was a, a purchase price. You notice the word there that he was ransom. He was a ransom. You ransom people for God. This whole passage, Dennis Johnson makes the point in his commentary, it has significant echoes of Egypt. Significant echoes. You have this sense of a, a, a death has taken place. That was in place of people. And then a song that is sung that celebrates a ransom out of slavery. Because that's what that word ransom really means. It means you were in bondage. You had no ability to free yourself. You had no ability to be rescued. And and someone paid the price. And in this case, the price that had to be paid was the death that was owed because of sin. And he says, you are worthy because you paid that death. And because of that, these former sinners are now, now a people holy to the Lord. He is worthy. That's why I call this the song of redemption. And we notice the effect of that ransom, that there are people now brought into God's kingdom, not just from one nation, not just descendants of Abraham, but rather people from every tribe and language and people and nation. No longer is it limited ethnically to one group. Now it's everyone. There is a a people, a representative people of every tribe, of every ethnicity, of every language that are included in the purchase price of the Lamb. In other words, when Jesus died, he died to ransom a multi-ethnic global church. And so these representatives of heaven, these representatives of that church say, you are worthy. Look at what you have done. Since Babel, humanity has been scattered and divided because they only use their unity to defy God. And so this is a reversal of Babel. What has been divided because of sin is now united in Christ. What is divided in our day and age by animosities and angers and national jealousies and cravings and pitting power against power and and sinful antagonism for the selfish reason of self-promotion. No, is, is now united under the lordship and the banner of Christ. In other words, a world that cannot actually be united under God's authority in any other way is united by the blood-bought unity that Christ alone provides. And these beings say, you are worthy. These beings are smarter than us. They've seen more than us. They've lived longer than us. So they are more aware than we are of how impossible that task is. How can you bring together a people from every tribe and nation, a permanent people with permanent unity, with all of their very differences? You notice they're not obliterated in their differences here. 
It's not as though when you get to heaven, all of the differences are eradicated. Rather, they're celebrated. Their distinctions are celebrated because there is a greater unity that is found in the person and work of Christ. This song that begins, this song of redemption, includes what the church is. You've ransomed a people from every tribe, language, people, and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Now, this is important to notice because this, this phrasing, it, it's, it's imitates in some ways what First Peter writes about the church, but it is glorious language. It means that the ransomed people of God have a, a royal nobility and a priestly holiness of access into God's presence. It means they have a, a definition, a citizenship, a loyalty that is attached to the very throne that we've been talking about. It means that they have a future, and you want to notice the future tense here is intentional. It changes the verb form. They shall reign on the earth. I think it's future. They're the other, the other verbs you notice there, they are not future, and that's intentional. Even in the Greek, it's that way. Because we are right now priests, and we are right now ransomed, but as we well know, we don't right now reign on this earth. And so John is reaffirming them, yes, but one day there will be a new earth, and Christ will reign with his people over that earth. There is a, a dignity and an honor that's being communicated here, and Christ receives all the glory of it, but we are supposed to be motivated and, and, and given confidence through this victory. I, I just want to make a, a couple of kind of cultural points as an aside, because of these two phrases, a kingdom priest to our God, they shall reign on the earth because of his blood. Just a, a couple of points. Because as you well know, we, we have gone through over the recent years a cultural turmoil that has been intense, and it, it has, <laughs> has not stayed out of the church of Christ in this western hemisphere for sure. And, and people, Christians of all different denominations are, are seeing this, are observing this, are responding different ways. You have different voices. That are, how, how do we think about this? What, what are we supposed to do as the culture changes? And in many ways, as it declines away from a Judeo-Christian morality, what, what, what do we do about that? How are we to think about that? I, I think this passage and how it connects to many other passages in Scripture, they, they give us something, something of a a direction, a, a marching call, a reminder of who we are in light of those things. I just, I just want to give you a, a couple of things I would want to be cautious about. Perhaps you've heard the phrase Christian nationalism. Christian nationalism. It's been somewhat popular in Christian teaching and so forth. Christian nationalism. And it's a hard phrase to nail down because it means a lot of different things to different people. To some people, all that means is that Christians ought to play a role in their nation. They ought to serve and be salt and light as Jesus called us to do. And if that's what it means, then I'm all for it. We ought to be that way. But for some people, it explicitly means that we ought to remake the nation as an explicitly Christian nation. That Christianity is meant to be defined by a political structure in this age. In this nation and every other nation on earth. But, but, 
If that's the definition, I would want to caution and even urge against embracing it. Because the the kingdom of Christ is a spiritual kingdom in this age. It is associated with the church. And one day, Christ will rule over every nation. But we're not to associate his kingdom with the political structures of this age. As Jesus himself said, my kingdom is not of this world. It is in this world. It is in this world, but it is not of this world. So we have to be careful. There's a difference between Christians influencing the nations and the nations becoming Christian nations as if the nation, the nation itself, is the Christian structure that God is building on this earth. There is only one Christian structure that is built on this age, and that is the church of Jesus Christ. Now, we want a moral nation because God rules over all, and he will judge the living and the dead. And we should fight for the oppressed, and we should fight against immoralities in the appropriate spiritual ways while honoring those that are around us. And yet, we don't want to associate Christian power and the kingdom identity that we have with a national political structure, whether in this country or any country. Because we are a kingdom But like the Lord said, we are not a kingdom of this age. That takes discernment. And so when people issue rallying cries, the church must rise up and take over the culture, I would say, well, what do you mean by that? Because the church must rise up. It must be courageous. But it is is representing a kingdom that is not of this world. It is representing a kingdom that is put forward by love and witness and courageous testimony to the king of heaven. It's not a kingdom that is looking to build some kind of societal structure of kingship associated with America or any other nation. We are a kingdom of many nations. We are a kingdom of many peoples. We are a kingdom of many tribes and many languages, and we will always be. There is no one nation on earth that claims to be God's kingdom because God's kingdom is made of many nations and many tribes and many tongues. And that is an honor to us, not discouraging to us. I think another word that's important to notice here is that word priests. Because some of what Christians are longing for right now is, I want something to do. I see the activity of evil. I see the boldness of evil. What, what do I do? How do I, how do I respond to this? Well, we are priests. Here, here's a courageous way to respond. Be holy to the Lord. Represent God on earth in all of his holiness and in all of his mercy. The priests ministered to God. They also represented God to those that were outside. And so in this day of salvation, to be a priest is to be holy, personally, consecrated to the Lord. It's also to represent God to the nations. In all of his mercy and the offer of salvation and all of his holiness. So if you want something courageous to do, do that. Act like one who is set apart to God, who is consecrated to God in every aspect of life. Whether you're a construction worker or a lawyer or a politician or a mother or a child, be like a priest committed to the holiness of God and worshiping in all of your life. 
bear witness to that kingdom of heaven that is not a kingdom of this earth and does not wage warfare with the weapons of this age, but does wage warfare with powerful weapons of the word of Christ and the power of the Spirit. Be, be like that. That's the call that the church needs in this day. Into the darkness we go as lights in a dark world, as representatives of a heavenly kingdom, as those unashamed to be holy in an unholy age, as those gladly proclaiming that there is a lamb who is not yet returned in judgment, and so he offers salvation to all who come to him in repentance and faith. Be like that, and you'll be doing what you can do right now. This is the song of redemption. The song escalates. It escalates, and I think it's important because sometimes we feel the weakness. We feel the weakness of, is that all we can do? We, we feel weak right now. Our little pathetic song in the midst of the raunchy choruses of this age can feel weak and pathetic and not particularly strong. So John continues to the song of the angels. The song of the angels. Verse 11 says, Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Now that word myriad, it probably means 10,000. So what we're supposed to get here is 10,000 times 10,000, 1,000 times 1,000. The point here, millions of angels. John looked and heard around the living creatures and the elders the voice of millions of angels. Millions of angels that repeat the essence of this song. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Again, notice, the angels are so impressed with the death of Christ, the redeeming death of Christ. They are so amazed by it, even though they haven't personally benefited from it. They are so amazed that God the Son would die in the place of sinners, that they rouse their unimaginable, powerful voice to declare, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. And then they add a, a sevenfold ascription of glory to him. He should receive power meaning all powers submit to him. He receives wealth, meaning all riches belong to him. He receives wisdom, meaning his mind is the controlling perspective of the universe. He receives might, means he is absolutely sovereign over everything. He receives glory, meaning the attribution of God's purposes will resound to him. He receives blessing, meaning his worth will resound from the lips of his servants. Their voices echo with the untold greatness of the Lamb. Now, why does this matter to us? Because like John and his churches, our singing to this lamb feels weak in the midst of the power structures of this age. It feels like lame that, I mean, all I can really do is live for the glory of God and sing for the glory of God and bear witness to the glory of God. That's... I mean, have you noticed the power structures of this age? Sh surely 
There's something else I can do. I, I feel so weak. My church is weak. My voice is weak. My efforts are weak. I mean, even if I try my hardest, I, I see overwhelming power in this age. It, this song doesn't seem very strong in this earth, John. Even if we sing it, it it's not very powerful. I mean, baseball clubs have millions of people gathering to celebrate their victory. And, and I, I have a couple of hundred on a Sunday morning. We feel weak. So John says, let, let me tell you what chorus you are joining. Let me tell you where the real power is. You know the story from the Old Testament when the prophet is there in the city and his servant sees the enemies of God surrounding the city of God's people, and, and he panics. And he says, do you see the enemy? Do you see how powerful they are? What's he doing? He's feeling weak. He's feeling like the church always feels in this age. And when it doesn't feel that way, it's usually an exception in history rather than the rule. I think what's hard for the church in the West right now is we've had a couple hundred years where we had a, an unusually larger percentage of cultural influence compared to history and the world. And so as that declines, sometimes there's a level of panic. Like, what, how, how, do, how do we function? How, we, we feel weak right now. What do you, what do you mean? What, uh, what do you mean we don't have Christians always in power? What do you mean everybody that's a president's not a Christian? What do you mean that we don't have Christian politicians? What do you mean we can't do everything we want to do with freedom? Well, what, 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 we got to do something. Well, sure, we can do something, and we should do what we can do, but I can't guarantee we're not going to feel weak because <laughs> most of our brothers and sisters throughout history and throughout the globe, they, they feel weak. They feel like that servant next to the prophet saying, do you see the enemies of God? And then the prophet prayed, open his eyes. And around those enemies, th there's a, a fiery ring of angelic power. That's the point of this second part of this course. <laughs> Listen, do not be impressed with the powers of this age. Do not be intimidated by them. Don't try to use their weapons to try to match their strength. You don't need to because there's an army singing this song. There's an army beyond any army in history. It's important to remember in the Old Testament, I think we're given pictures of these angels on reason. One angel, one angel wiped out the entire army surrounding Jerusalem. One angel. You can read about it in Isaiah. 185,000 soldiers were dead in a night. One angel. Here we have 100 million angels. What's the point? Listen. Yeah, your singing may seem quiet right now. You're witnessing. You're living as a light and salt in this age. It might seem weak, but <laughs> there is an army choir that is joining your song. And they are loyal to the lamb that died for you. They are loyal to the lamb that died for you. And if this is the army of that lamb, how great and powerful must that lamb be? 
How great and majestic must that, no wonder he should receive might and glory and power and wisdom and might. This is his army? How, how far beyond any human might on this age? How pathetic do the boasts of modern politicians seem compared to this? How pathetic do the efforts of tyrants seem in this age compared to this? The roar of this choir dwarfs the boasts of this age. And it's added here, not just that's interesting what angels do. No, the point is, sing with confidence. Yeah, you seem weak right now, but there's an angel army that is joining you in heaven. And they haven't been unleashed yet, and the only explanation why is because some of the people that are now rebels against Christ are going to be brought into this kingdom. That is the only explanation why this angelic army is required to sing and not slaughter. That is the only explanation because there are people in this world that are now rebelling against Christ but are meant to be brought into Christ. So we're not meant to read this and think, yeah, oh, we're so much better than all these people in this age. No, we're just like them except for the blood of the Lamb. We're not better than them except by the blood of the Lamb. And so they are meant to be brought in too. And so that angelic army is required to sing and not slaughter yet because some of those people are supposed to come into this choir. And we have the privilege of bearing witness to the Lamb's offer of salvation, of going to them and saying, listen, I, I fully understand. I'm, I'm, I get it. The pleasures of sin are enticing. Living for this age is enticing. I, I, I do that too, and I, I know about heaven, and, but I would love to have you join the only choir that really matters. I'd love to have you become a part of the only kingdom that really matters. That's true of people who love power in this age, who love pleasure in this age, who are living for themselves, who deny the existence of God. There are people out there in all of those categories that one day are going to join this choir. And this angel army is meant to motivate us. You're not in a position of weakness, actually. You're in a position of unimaginable strength when you represent the Lamb who is represented by millions and millions of angels. To pray that God's will be done on earth as it is done in heaven means that we are eager to join our meager voices to this heavenly choir. That we will live with a, a worshiping confidence, a worshiping confidence in his unassailable power. And we are completely unintimidated by the power structures of our day. I, I want to speak specifically to men because this point just, <laughs> it just motivated me to want to, to call out to you, my brothers, the worship of the Lamb is the most manly thing you can do. Too often, worship is considered the purview of women, and it is the purview of women, but it is not only the purview of women. It is not only women who should be passionate about singing the praises of the Lamb. We, we live in an age where <laughs> unbiblical expressions of masculinity abound. 
There's the culture that celebrates a feminized manhood that has no strength or conviction or boldness or courage. There's the reaction to that that celebrates a tyrannical manhood that boasts and brags in its physical strength. And here we have an alternative, a Christian manhood that is bold and courageous towards the Lamb, not in physical dominion, as if our muscles are impressive to God, but rather in a spiritual courage that is willing to raise its voice that would gladly be raised in any number of superficial times in the worship of the Lamb. The voice of the church in public and in private should not just be feminine, it should be masculine. It should not be only women who are glad to represent that they belong to Jesus. It ought to be men with all of their boldness and God-given courage that God made them to have, who boldly will sing and boldly will shout the praises of the Lamb. If you want to be a man the way God made you to be, sing the praises of the Lamb. If a million angel army can shout, you notice it says a loud voice. If a million angel army can shout, the lamb is worthy. Then how dare anybody say it's unmasculine to do so? I appeal also to the young men. Masculine courage, I think, is frequently denigrated in this age. I want to tell you there is nothing more courageous for a young man than living unashamed of the glory of the Lamb, than singing loudly of the glory of the Lamb. Are there other elements of masculinity, protecting women and guarding and using your strength as a shield? Yes, yes, all good but nothing better than this. And if you're 15, 16, 17 years old, there is nothing more manly than shouting the praises of the king. This <laughs> angel army is meant to encourage and motivate us. Don't, don't be afraid. There is nothing to fear. No change in our culture. No wars or rumors of wars. No tyrants invading nations. No subtle behind-the-scenes governmental intrigues is more powerful than this lamb who reigns in heaven and receives unimaginable worship from those of unimaginable power. The song of the angels. The, the chorus concludes with the song of all creation. John says in verse 13, I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea. The point here is meant to be comprehensive and all that is in them. It gives voice to creation. I, I think likely what is happening here, which happens often in Revelation, I'll come up again, John, John is not given these in a sort of a, a chronological, evenly spaced timeline. <laughs> 
He's given visions that at one point are looking to the present, at another point are looking to the future. At one point he takes it step by step, at another point he advances. I think that's what's happening here. He, he, it's almost as if he gives an advance notice of that time when Christ has returned, when the wicked have been expelled, and when the fulfillment of his victory is experienced, when in the new heavens and the new earth, every creature is singing the praises of the Lamb. When the glory of the Lord covers the earth as the waters cover the sea, and there is not a single errant voice escaping the call to worship, because they are all responding to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And once again, the elders fall down and worship. Why, why do we get this future picture? Because however weak we feel right now, however much courage it takes right now to sing and witness to the king, there will come a day when that's all that will be. That's all that will exist is the worship of the king. Worship in word, in song, in activity, in all of the, the ways God intends us to serve him in the future, many of which we don't even fully understand yet, but it will all be the worship of the king. In other words, this age is temporary. This age is temporary. Likes Impressions, style, political parties, the rising and falling of nations, plagues, technologies, computers, the rising of waters and the falling of waters. Temporary. And there will come a day when all that there will be is the glory of Jesus Christ and God on the throne and every creature will resound in worship. And that will be a crowd you want to be a part of. And that crowd and worship is something that should shape our lives right here and right now. Brothers and sisters, that day is all that really matters. Everything we do this day should be to build our anticipation for that day. What we do right now matters in that it anticipates that day. So we're serving the Lord this day as if it was that day. And we're worshiping this day as if it was that day. And we're proclaiming with boldness the glory of Christ this day as if it was that day because we believe by faith that that day is coming. When every creature, the only creatures who will not be judged will be those who have laid claim on the redemption of the Lamb and have come into His new heavens and His new earth and are raising their voice with all of their glory glorified bodies to say, worthy is the Lamb. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be all the glory we can give. Listen, this perspective, this revelation perspective, it obliterates so many stubborn sins. It obliterates materialism. It obliterates self-righteousness. It obliterates 
fear of evangelism. It obliterates laziness. It obliterates craving for power in this age. It obliterates national idolatry and political idolatry and self-idolatry. It obliterates those things by replacing them with the vision of the glory of Christ and the glory of the future and the power and honor that he deserves. In other words, we don't just want to be a moral people going through our days trying to do right and trying to do wrong with no engine vision for the future. We want to be a people that are captured by this vision and allow it to shape our everyday life. This is the future that we long for, the future we were redeemed for. The future that is not just a wish, but a certainty. And in the meantime, in our own meager way, as much as we can, loving the Lord with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, we join that choir, believing in corporate moments and in private moments that there is a, <laughs> a much more powerful choir that ever sings the glory of the king and his redemption. Let's join that choir on Sundays and on weekdays. Let's force our eyes to see through the pale of this age, to be gripped by eternity and the glory of the Lamb. Let's sing. Lord Jesus, we want to sing of your holiness, the one who made creation, the one who redeemed your church, the one who is high and glorious above all things, the one who sits on the throne. You alone deserve glory. You alone are holy, high and above us and mighty and powerful. And somehow, Lord, in your redemption, we are privileged to join this song. Lord, I want to pray in particular for the men of this church, myself included. I thank you for the godly women that you have given us in our church, but I pray for men, young and old. Lord, cause us to be undaunted worshipers, manly shouters of the glory of the Lamb. Do this among us, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.